Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Coaching Call podcast. On this podcast, we'll cover various types of coaching by trainers in sports, martial arts, fitness, and business. We'll discuss each coach's methods to getting the most out of their respective athletes or clients and how they attempt to change the platform in which they coach. Join us on a fun adventure as we discuss unique coaching styles. We've all been coached before, in school, at work, or on a team. Your first coaches were your mom and dad who taught you how to communicate, tie your shoes, or play a simple game of catch. Coaching is a universal part of how we get others to get something done. Join your host, Raphael, and his guests on this unique journey in coaching. Hi, I'm Sifu Raphael, and this is the Coaching Call Podcast. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoy my show, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. To donate, go to paypal.me slash Raphael. That's S-I-F-U-R-A-F-A-E-L. I'm trying to keep this podcast free of advertisements. Anything you can donate is greatly appreciated. Thank you. I really appreciate your support. My guest today is Dana Abbott. Dana's expertise in Kenjutsu, known as the Japanese swordsmanship, is what makes him the modern samurai warrior. Dana, thank you so much for joining me on the coaching call today. I really appreciate your time and I am looking forward to this conversation. I mean, you are definitely a very interesting well, person. Well, good. And what you've done with your life, it, it must be a fun adventure and the fact of what you've done for the martial arts community and in general, I mean, it's huge. Your name is well known in the industry, but also the fact that, like we were talking, you bring humor to all we're doing. Yeah, no one can kick my butt anymore, so I... <laughs> they can try, <laughs> but it ain't going to happen. <laughs> you know, there you go. well, big I stand stick. far with a big stick. Having a big stick is, is key, right? It helps. It helps. Let's talk about what motivated you. And let's go back to your early childhood. What motivated you to, I don't know if you had the vision of where you are today. Not, not many of us do when we were kids. But what motivated you to get started, to take on the martial arts, or even to eventually realize that what you have is special and to share it with other people. So let's go back and start when you were a little guy and uh, running around and doing all your things. Uh, just running around. I had a big brother and we were living in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he took, well, his, our parents took us to judo at UC Berkeley back in 1965, 1966. I was about nine or 10 years old. So I remember learning how to fall backwards and slapping my hand on the green mat. And then for at least six months or a year after that, my brother just throwing me on the ground all the time. And, and right, then it just right. sort of dissipated. You know how life is mm. until I uh, got out of college. So the younger, the younger ages, yeah, it was just a little bit of martial arts and lots of people that you, you watch on TV, of right. course. It's, it's that motivation that I guess you, you got it when you were nine years old. It kind of dissipated. Yes. But there was something there that made you go back. What, what would you say that was? 
I had a girl's name. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting when when people probably they they think that Dana's coming, they're expecting someone else. I still get Ms. Dana. Mm. I still get it in the mail. It's it's the way it is, just right. the way it is. So, uh, hey, anyway, with that feeling, basically, in regular sports, it was hard to be picked first because with a girl's name, they didn't really pick you. Mm. So eventually, I did a lot of self-sports, like running and track and things like that instead right. of, like, football. But, hey, I was too short. <laughs> Basketball is always a fat lip and a stiff neck because I was really short for that. And baseball is like a government job and is just too slow for me. Mm. You know, you know, so those were the basics back in the 60s, what you had when you, you know, were growing up. Right, right. Yeah. But So then, then comes college and, and you say, I'm, I'm going to look into something. Yes. What was that motivation then? That was September 1978. Mm. And a gentleman named Bob Baldwin, Bob the dog catcher, we called him because I lived in a small town after Arizona State. And. He came up to me and he goes, hey, Dana, you want to see a punch and kick at the same time? I went, okay. And he did it. And I go, wow, that's cool. Where'd you learn this? And he goes, at the Police Athletic League at the Armory. Mm. And he goes, do you want to go? And I went, okay. And that's what started me back into kick and punch and things like that in September 1978 Mm. in a small town you know is Prescott, Arizona where all those Billy Jack movies were seen or made. Oh my gosh, remember those movies? Oh, down near the courtyard, all that stuff. And I, you know, that's, that's where I lived and that's the existence I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's the county I worked in when I worked as a surveyor for the engineering department there. Because mm. we had 8,100 square miles of Cow Pie County. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wow, you brought back some really cool memories Billy Jack. Oh my gosh. How cool. I mean, when you, when you would watch it, when you're a kid and so forth. Oh my God. That was like so awesome. You know, the, the, if there was an episode where there was a car coming at him and I think he hit the headlight and and, and broke it. And I'm like, okay, what happened to his hand? (laughs) Because, you know, reality, come on, the car's coming (laughs) at you, you turn around, you hit, you break it with your hand. And it was just that, like, wow, this guy is beyond. And the fact that, you know, he was standing up for the little guys, right? Because that was, that, was, that was what it was based on. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it was the love and peace movement back then. If you look at the movie like Billy Jack, the one that's really well known, and you see the very end where everybody has their hand up right. in solidarity, if I can say that correctly, and and there are these driving down because they just put him and arrested him. That's coming out of uh, Prescott Community College. Mm. That was just a long street going back into town, little things like that. So nice, it's nice. interesting how you can take something simple put some good music to it, right. put some good martial arts at the courtyard, and uh, it's nice. Mm. It really is. So that's what got me going. Besides, you know, the Seven Samurai or, you know, Mifune and those types of people that did all that, mm-hmm. those are the ones that really got me started. But uh, being in that small little town with nothing better to do than kick and punch, you bet your butt I did. <laughs> <laughs> so wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute for a second. You didn't stop there. You didn't stay in that little no, town. No, 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 no. You went overseas. Yes. Oh, my gosh. How did that come about? Well, 
I was punching and kicking with the Police Athletic League. And then Prescott, Arizona is a big place with lots of interesting people that never want to be seen. And I ran into this guy named Toby. And Toby Delgadillo. And he was a vet. And he was one of those Rambo types that couldn't deal with society. But he lived in Korea for a long, long time. And I met him, and he was working at a five and dime over there. Cornet five and dimes when they had him in Prescott at that time. And I heard about him over a while. You hear about who does martial arts and who doesn't? So I get up to him, and I go, hey, I hear you do martial arts. And he goes, yeah. And I go, can you show me something? So he looks at me and he throws a kick up to my face and holds it there. I put my hand up to his foot. I pull it down. I goes, wow, that's great. Can you train me? And since he was single and I was, we guilt tripped each other three hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. And we just worked out really. He taught me well. He beat the crap out of me religiously because he learned Korean karate back when it was Korean karate, you know, the, the old guy stuff. So yeah, I just got the crap beat out of me. And then one day, about eight, 10 months into it, I hit him. He goes down. He gets up faster and he went down, wipes the blood off his lip and he goes, mm, time for weapons. <laughs> so I started a three-sectional staff. I went to a few other weapons like the Tongfa and the Nunchak and this, that, and the other. But when I picked up the wooden sword... I went, ooh, I like this. And by 1984, I was in Japan learning with the masters. Wait a minute. Wait, you jumped too quick. You jumped too quick, Dana. So what do you mean you were living? You just didn't, you didn't wake up and you were there. That was a process. What, 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 no, what was I, your mindset it was a, at that it was point a process. to yourself? I need to go. Oh, I know why. There I am. Mm. Sitting in the bathroom reading Black Belt magazine because everybody did. Yeah. And I'm sitting there reading this. And this is like, you know, 1979, 1980, you know, somewhere around there. Right, right. I'm reading this. And, you know, Chuck Norris and the gusset, hidden crotch kick pants and, you know, that type of stuff. And, and I'm thinking to myself, one day, one day. And I'd wear out the front yard where the grass was just doing katas and katas and katas. Wait, did I say more katas and katas and katas and move and this, the simple basics. And I did that until, uh, mm. uh, you know, until it was, it was a weird, I was a nerd at it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I put it into sports though. For example, have you ever heard of a game called, well, they, in, in China, they call it shuttlecock. Here in the U.S., they call it hacky sack. Mm, yes. Yeah. And I learned that I could keep it up two, three thousand times nonstop because I had my legs mm. dialed in really well. Learning with Korean karate to begin with, you had to use your legs. My legs were healthy and uh, that's where I took it. But when it came to weaponry, I figured that uh, I might as well go with the best. And right. very few people went to Japan. So within a few years, because that was like 1979, 1980, I'm going someday. And then about four years later, I'm in Japan. I don't know anybody. I don't know anything. I just know that I want to. When you arrived in Japan, yeah, you didn't know the language or you did. Yeah, a few words. No, no, no. Yeah, I knew a few the bathroom, words. Right? You know, I could get beer. <laughs> I need to eat. There right? it is. Yes. How was it finding yeah. 
the authentic masters? How, how did you go about finding them? I was really lucky. I, you know, I, I just was. Just let it go at that. I had no talent, no this, no that. But I just ran into a guy, started talking to him, and he was the headmaster of Nihon Taiku Daigaku, the best martial art university, or at least the top three in Japan every year since 1890. Mm. So, and I was a foreigner, and I was one of the first foreigners people saw because back in the 80s, They see them on TV once in a while, but after World War II, Americans didn't want to go back to Japan, so Japanese didn't see them. And the and the martial artists that played kendo or did kendo and swordmanship, they didn't deal with any Americans, so there was no English to be spoken anyway. Mm-hmm. So with that, there was no prejudice whatsoever. Everybody was always open arms. Everybody, and it was just really, really good. And I'm going off on a tangent here. So no, no. Please do. That, that's what makes it so interesting, that story of, of how you came to it and how you've taken it so much further than most people would have. Because you didn't go there for a month. You went to really get the nitty-gritty. You went for the real deal. And like you said, you yes. went to the source, right? Yes, I went to the source. I just did, there it was in front of me. It's sort of like going to the White House and the first guy you meet happened to be the president. And you went, dude, he went, yeah, what do you want to see? And it was like that. Mm. And since we won the war, because at that time that still counted, right. extra point or two, because, you know, the, 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 the martial artists that did sword, they liked military. You know, they liked the American. They, you know, it was just war, though. You know how that is. Mm. So most all my teachers were World War II vets, mm. and they were all in their mid-60s. And their form of swordsmanship was way different than you see with a lot of the Seiza Tohor, the people that do a lot of kneeling and tea drinking and stuff. Right. These guys actually use sword. Let's just put it this way. I remember when I was 12 or 13, I was traveling between L.A. and Phoenix, and there is some type of military base or some museum And I went into there, and I saw a general, a brigadier general, and he was smart, slick, beautiful. It just looked like, you know, the perfect, you know, Marine, you know, that type of thing. Mm. That's what these guys looked like. Mm. Yeah. And then their teachers were still around, and they're in their 80s. Right. And they'd come in occasionally, and they would look old men, and they'd put on their outfits, and they looked like the general. Right. Everybody looked so perfect and even. So anyway, that was almost one of my endeavors, mm. just to emulate them. Just because they, you, you, I'll be 100 before I die, you know, just because your body's all well-oiled. Yeah, yeah. Because it all comes back to health and longevity, what it comes down to, because you get too old to beat on everybody. Right. But with kendo, for example, and the combatives of those aspects, you can do it when you're 98 years old if you want to, mm-hmm. or 18, doesn't really matter. That's the nice thing about swordsmanship. You can do it till you drop. You studied in Japan for how many years now? 15 years. And then I've been married to Japanese for 34. Raised our kids all in both countries and, you know, everything. So if you were Japanese and we were having the same conversation, 
In Japanese, you know, yeah. We'd be talking about American spirits. Do you funny American spirits or Kange Tabasco? You know, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Your energy is, is so amazing. And thank you for that because we need that. We need what you have to offer. I've actually trained with you way back, I think back in probably the 80s or. Yes. Because I met you the first time. It might have been Florida or somewhere at an event, and, and you were doing your, your thing, you know, and so amazing. You're, you're caring. The way you instruct people, I mean, you, you were taking people. And one of the things about me is I'm a, a avid people watcher. So I was watching how you dealt with people. Yes. And you were so generous and so kind and so forgiving, right? Because when we're going to help someone, we have to forgive their mistakes, right? And you were so patient. Yes. When you gave somebody a sword to try it out and they would try stuff and you're like, oh, and the, you know, you could see they were like somewhat afraid and you were there encouraging them. Do it like this, do it like that. And it was just dynamic. To see you work with other people, it's beautiful. I'm telling you, you, you're definitely a gift to the martial arts world. Oh, thank you. Thank you. At Nihon Taiku Daigaku, it's a martial arts university, but it's also a physical education university. So when you graduate from there with a bachelor's or a master's, mm. you become a coach at a junior high or high school or go into fire department or police departments and stuff. So the way I was taught to teach, if I didn't go to Japan and I would have taught someone without all that Japanese omote to uda, mm -hmm. you know, it, it would have been, it would have been way different. But that's the thing about it. The Japanese are like that because it takes a lifetime. So why get frustrated? You know, but I used to run into, you know, there was a time when I first came back where like, for example, in Florida or at the super shows or at the EFC or at NATMA, you know, it was new to them. So I'd get, you know, over a weekend, mm. about 300 people sparring with me, you know, you know, for five seconds or 20 minutes, you never know. Oh yeah. And you know, we used to get big crowds, but it used to be really, really fun because everybody'd really get into real time sparring. And that was the nicest thing about being able to use swordsmanship, but use right. the action flex equipment, which, you know, we developed so the average person could get into it because you know how hard it is to coach someone with bamboo. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you take a Shania or a Hatsawadi and you hit them once, yeah, you hit them twice in the same place, they're out of the game. Right. It's right. like teaching people how to juggle, but you start with knives, even though you should have started with bean bags. You know how it is. So the, the Action Flex equipment is sort of like bean bags, which allowed everybody in the United States to start their swordsmanship so at least they could see it come in before they get hit. So yeah. <laughs> let, let's, you know, it, it's very interesting. Let, let's talk about how that was developed. What made you realize that you needed to create something to bring it to the masses? Because that definitely changed the aspect of how many people wanted to do it. Because there, there's that safety that you brought forth that was not there before. Yes. You know, all, all around. It's, what would we say? It was inevitable because if you can put a man on the moon, you should be able to make a device that you can hit someone with and it doesn't hurt. 
basically. So when that away, and since old school in the martial arts is all gone and new school creates softer black belts, light colored, not dark black belts, you know, ones that by the time they're a third degree black belt, they're a first degree black belt just because it's been watered down enough so everybody can be a black belt. Yeah. yeah. So what happens is the softer weaponry takes away that wateriness and allows people to practice in real time. So before, when a karate kid or a kick and punch kid was a brown belt, he could start weapons. Mm-hmm. And then they might get focused. But over in Japan, years years and years ago and here, right, right. if they start off as a yellow belt, they use a little bit of the weapons. By the time they're a purple belt, they're pretty good. By the time they're a brown belt, they know real-time movements, not just philosophy. So what happens is, is down the road, they won't get hit by the car because they're paying attention. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all it is, just paying attention. Because if you're not going to pay attention, you're going to get whacked upside the head. It won't hurt you. But it's frustrating until you figure out how to do it. Now, in kendo, the philosophy goes back like this, because everything I'm doing goes back to how I was taught. And it is like this. I'm the teacher. You're the student. If you can't hit me correctly, who are you going to hit correctly? Mm-hmm. That's why all students just beat on, kendo students, they beat on their masters. They can hardly get in unless a teacher lets them in. But that's how they learn the spirit of the thing. Mm-hmm. Being able to get in and at the very beginning hit as hard as you can in a very controlled manner. That's why they start off the kids in kendo over there at about three, four, five years old. And for the first few years, it's men, men, men. It's the headshot, straight down smoker. And after that, everything becomes good. Right, right. But there's another thing, another philosophy that you don't see in here is that in regular punch kick, it's a defensive move. What's the first move you ever learned? How to do, make a block? Over in Japan, you don't learn no block. You already lost. Right. You're going to learn how to go in for the kill. The men shot, the kote shot, the doe shot. Then all of a sudden you go, well, where are the blocks? There's no blocks. You're in. Mm. And it's, it's sort of like this. If I was going to say, I want you to, I'm going to take my sword. Let's see, you say we're going to use our fake real swords, okay? Right, okay. And I'm going to swing and hit your sword, and you're going to block with yours. And we do that three or four times. And then you look at your sword, it's all dinged up. Yeah. Imagine 500 years ago, you're a samurai, and you did the same thing, and you weren't very good, and you dinged the blade up. The next generation, like, who is the jerk? grandfather that couldn't do this because they've been trying to buff out those imperfections for three or four generations you can look back and you can see the tree there was an idiot that held the sword yeah you know so basically um all the technique is like shooting a firearm almost there's no defensive moves let's get in there or get there so what happens is Here's how I want you to hear how funny it sounds in different thoughts. Mm-hmm. If I say to a Japanese, just block my sword with you and I'll counter, it's like me saying to you, we just saw a shot 300 rounds out of my 45 or your 45, and now I want, I'm going to shoot at you with mine, and I want you to hold your gun up, and I want you to block the bullets with your firearm. Yeah, this is stupid. That's how you think. So therefore, the best block is no block at all. 
And if you are going to block, it's called suriage. It's called rubbing the blade up. So you learn footwork and moving in and out and using that sword work in with it to be able to get in at 40 miles an hour, but get out at 80. And that's the secret. So there's no defensive moves. You gotta be on the ball, but very few people, well, let's put it a different way. Everybody can fly a Cessna 172. Not everybody can fly a Phantom 14. And that's what it takes. The difference in flying a fixed winged aircraft between one to the other, a lot of attention. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, that's why I love the martial art that I do. It's a uh, Tibetan Lama Pai. There really is no blocking. It, it's your strike is the block if a block is coming. So that, that is, uh, you know, that is yes. a key fundamental that I teach when I teach it. Because are you wasting the time on a block? Also, let's say, let's say no weapons. Yes. Right. So the way I teach to fight, do you block or do you hit? How about we do both at the same time? Right. So our strikes a little bit different. They look weird, but guess what? They're effective, <laughs> and that's what we're looking for, right? W one of the things they that are. you have done is you definitely have changed the, the way people are looking at learning to train with weapons. Because in the old days, there was no padded weapons. Uh, you know, I, I know the guys from Dog Brothers, and they do the stick fighting, right? Screamer stick fighting. Those guys went around oh, yeah. the United yes. States looking for people who would, you know, they said, I'm a Kali instructor. I said, okay. They challenged all these Kali instructors to real duels. And a lot of them were like, oh, no, I just teach it for sport. And so he, they, they went around the country. And if there's so many YouTube videos on them, because it's, can you fight? Can you defend? And can you strike? Right? So when you think of martial arts and when you think of what you're teaching. Yeah. It's it's got to be effective. It has to work, and so you you said something earlier. It has to work. Yes, you said pretend black belts. Yes, and there's well, well, watered down. Let's Not let's go pretend. there. Let's go. Just watered down black belts. Watered yeah. down. Yeah, <laughs> almost charcoal black, right? belts. So yes. what winds up happening? There are so many people yeah. out there who believe they're black belts, but they've never actually been in a situation where they have to really use it. And if they did, they'd be in a lot of trouble. So what winds up happening is a lot of these, let's call them charcoal black belts, decide to open up a school. They didn't go through all the full training. Now they have a school and now they're training people. And what happens? That charcoal black belt is now going to be not necessarily teaching the full concepts because they didn't stick long enough to understand them. You know, they didn't go through all the training that you and maybe myself and other people have gone through. And all of a sudden, they are these black belts, charcoal belts, who are teaching martial arts when they are still not ready to teach it. They're not ready because they don't understand the full concept. They haven't fought with it. They haven't truly fought. They haven't engaged they, they have ideas, they have concepts, but they haven't really done the work that's necessary. And then all of a sudden, they're making their own black belts. And so what do we have now? What kind of black belts are really out there? Because do you want to train with the source or do you want to train with a charcoal belt? 
Well, remember, too, that everybody has their place in the martial arts. And charcoal belts, there's a whole bunch. It's great. You know what they do? You know what they're great for? Teaching. And they're teaching children. The children are taught well because if you had Chuck Norris trying to teach kids, they'd be all happy to see him. But after the third time, they'd have to do push-ups, too. Because just because kids are kids. So most charcoal belts are much better people at dealing with children. Me, I can say I have a real true black belt, but I suck dealing with kids. I set my kids off to have them done by my peers. Even though we've developed programs that deal around children, Mm. I just don't work with them as much as they do. So these people that have that works in well, and eventually down the road, people know, and then they go to different schools. But you have to remember this, too. It's a military art. Everything was originally a military art. The corporal teaches the private. The sergeant teaches the corporal and down. The problem we have here with what I say charcoal black belts are, they're a private. They became a corporal. But then all of a sudden, I turned myself into a second lieutenant. Mm. And here I have my piece of paper, which was great if they came from millionaire families, because that's what happened in the Civil War, if you wanted to be an officer, you know, things like that. So it depends what kind of pull or whatever you got or how you work it in. It depends how famous you are also in another sport or whatever that pulls you in. Right, yeah. But I'll tell you what, all those teachers, they are now. They're just beginning charcoal black belts, and five or 10 or 15 years down the road, they should be really, really good because they've matured into it. So it's basically black belts in training, even to up to 35, because I wasn't a teacher until I was in my mid-40s. It took that long. Mm. I practiced for 40 years, and for the last 23, I'd been a coach. Before that, I was just a sniveling kid. At 40, what does he know? But what happens is, with Japanese swordsmanship, is I'll be teaching until I'm 90 because that's what they do. Because the minute I quit teaching, I'm going to drop dead. So I'm going to teach until I'm 103. And that's the difference in the martial arts with the people that sort of get into it for like a career or they get into it just to do something or I'm becoming a black belt and I'm going to teach because just like PE coaches at junior high school, their 20s are running, 30s are a little sedentary. By their 40s, they have a gut. They're just pointing what to do. By the time they're 50s, they're old guys that never looked like they coached before. You know, that's just the way life happens. I mean, it's the way natural life happens. A real martial artist will look like they did when they were 20, 30, 40, 50, and 60, consistently in height and weight like all my teachers or myself. I haven't deviated 10 pounds ever. Right, and you're in great shape. Maybe 11 pounds once. I try to be at 65 this year. I'm the same weight as I was at 35 and that. And no extra weight. I'm still striving to have better posture. Well, you know, here's here's the whole thing. You're living the warrior mindset. That's that's what it truly is. There it is. Because let's, let's face it, right? If you had to defend your life now, do you have to go to training camp first? I just put the bayonet on the 500M Mossberg and go at it. (laughs) (laughs) If you're living the warrior mindset, the warrior life, you should be able to take on any challenge at any given time. And that's the warrior mindset, right? 
you should be able to if if someone yes. is going to attack you shouldn't have to say wait i gotta go train for six or eight weeks and then we'll talk and, and that's good like for the sport right if somebody's going to train as a as a ufc fighter they're going to train as a boxer or any other you know warrior type of of activity but when yes. you think about it some of those guys who actually train they go up and down in kind of a yo-yo type of effect and they're actually hurting to me i think that yes. when you do that to your body constantly you're kind of hurting your body but there are some of these fighters who are actually fighting at their weight maybe they go up a couple of pounds but not a 20 or 30 pound difference because that can definitely in the long run i think it's going to affect your overall health if you go up and down like that how long are you going to live but if you have the warrior mindset you're always ready your body's physically always ready and i see that with you i mean you're in phenomenal shape here's another person david kovar he's always in phenomenal shape you know for me if i'm not working out on a daily basis what am i doing so my morning routine it includes working out I wake up every morning. First thing I do, of course, brush my teeth, all that stuff. And then, boom, I start working out. And it doesn't matter if, let me see, I've never really been sick. It's because of the, the healthy lifestyle I, leave, I lead. But it's also because of the working out, of, of being fit, of eating right, right? Those are the... Hey, it all adds up to long life. It does. And, and that's having the warrior mentality because my thought is, Yes. You know, if I'm attacked right now, right this minute, right? If somebody just attacked me from the side, I can't like kind of, kind of like get up. I got to grab my belly. Oh, no, that's never going to happen. I'm going to react immediately. This is why I was so excited to talk to you today because you are living the warrior lifestyle. And if we can encourage people who are, let's say the charcoal belts, as we've been talking about, and for them to say, okay, Maybe yes. I did open up a school and maybe I'm really good with teaching kids, but can I teach the same technique to kids that I can teach to adults? Yes and no. There are different variations that you have to apply when you're teaching a kid and you're teaching an adult. When you're teaching an adult, your technique better work because otherwise you're putting them in danger because if they're ever confronted and they have to use a technique that is not going to work, their life is in danger. So it's important to understand that if you are this type of black belt who only deals with kids, awesome, because kids need that. But then if you decide that you're gonna teach someone to truly be able to defend themselves, then you gotta continue your studies, continue to grow as a martial artist, and live the warrior lifestyle. You know, it's hard for a lot of people to become tighter in their technique. Mm. They just don't put in the time. Yeah. You know, in swordsmanship, I've been using this word a lot in the last couple of years because it's happened, especially with instant gratification and all the TV shows that immediately they're masters of something. And I just say they're worthy or not worthy. And I'll tell you what, very few are worthy. Um, especially with a younger crowd, uh, case in point, across the street, there's a kid, he's about 24 or 25. And, you know, he asked, Hey, can I learn a little sword from you? Yeah, sure. Come on over to the house and I'll show you a few things. So he's standing there and I'm showing him a stance and he's holding the wooden sword and stuff like that. And I have a few of adjustments and within about five minutes, 
He starts sort of falling to the ground a little bit, and he's, oh, I can't get this perfectly. I'm going to give up. And he gave up. No way. Because he couldn't be perfect within five minutes. I haven't been perfect in 40 years yet. But it feels good. So case in point with that now. Dealing with lots of students, the every the whole media that distracts them mm. keeps them from working out because the media says, "Hold on for a second, you might miss something cool here." You know, I don't watch TV. Mm. We have a TV. Right. I think I can get on Netflix. No cable, no news, no this. Don't listen to talk radio because hey, I quit listening to music about three weeks ago because guess what? Bird songs and nature are starting to come back just because mm. we've been inundated with so much hardcore media that everybody's afraid of each other. A matter of fact, everybody looks at each other and goes, you breathe on me, I'm going to die. You know, I mean, it is the greatest case of cooties I've seen <laughs> since fourth grade Mrs. McCurdy's class. Absolutely. And that was dangerous back there because boys fell down running up the stairs getting away from the girls. I'm serious. That's how crazy this has gotten. So guess what? I am so relaxed this last year because I pushed everything out. Mm. I live in a hacienda. Yeah. Remember, I've traveled the world. I've already seen the other grasses, mm. you know, the other fences, the other things. I've traveled to about 60 countries. And if it's Tuesday, we're in Belgium, but, you know, long, you know, what would, they, what would the Australians used to call them? Walkabouts, oh, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. And I don't need to go out there and see because everybody's all looking at their phone now. I can go to Tokyo, everybody's looking at their phone. I can go to India now, everybody's looking at their phone. I can do this, you're looking at their phone. I've learned to go online, so they're looking at me on their phones. <laughs> and that's another part of new co- <laughs> and that's another part of coaching that I've gotten into. We started doing websites back in 2007 when Century took over my patent on the Action Flex equipment. And then I really started putting out the teaching there because we went world and it got to the point where not everybody could come to the United States. Right. So we took a basic book that I wrote and turned it into that and one, one to the other. And now, you know, everything's online. Everything works really well. They can go at their own pace. And it, for me, it's like watching boxing, and I've been in boxing all these years, and I can see a boxer at, on TV and know what they're doing wrong. Yeah, yeah. So I polish them that way, so when they come and see me, I can coach them at a full run instead of trying to walk them through. Now, when I deal with the, what do you call those, the, uh, the children's programs, I still deal with adults or the assistants and those people, and they're all on the same page. I have a program that's almost like a, a McDonald's as far as all the materials, so everybody's consistent from class to class, because you've got to be with a sword. Sword is simplicity, and people want to turn it into something that's chemistry. Mm. You know, if you can't explain it, it's so simple. And that's really cool about the sword. If a child learns swordsmanship, everything else is easy. For example, if you learn the simplicity of holding a sword and learning it just, just proficient, which doesn't take a long time, you can pick up any other weapon, put it in your hand and go, oh, how quaint, mm. and use it accordingly. That's what the samurai did. And all these Okinawan weapons are the weapons that most everybody uses, or the Chinese weapons, which follow the same suit. Basically, if you put a Chinese weapon in my Guandao, baby, here I come. You know what I mean? Oh, so it's just a little different size or whatever. So yeah, they all have sights. <laughs> I teach Chinese weapons, and and for me, 
one of the things that I always emphasize and let people know is if you want to learn how to use your body, you need to pick up a weapon because the weapon will, <laughs> yes. it will make sure you're moving correctly. You know, in the beginning, yeah, you may be clumsy and so forth. But once you can understand the weapon, oh my God, it is a beautiful, beautiful experience. And, and it's just amazing when you're thinking about what you're able to do with a weapon, how you're able to wield it, just the beauty of movement is, is just phenomenal. Yeah, it does. It looks really nice and it flows really well. I have no artistic background in me. I look like I'm rat trap. Yo, the rat trap up, someone comes in, stack it's down. You know, he's out. That's all I look. A matter of fact, I remember back when I was at the police athletic league with Bob, you know, the guy that got me in and most everybody else is, everybody else are cops and they're all stiff and, you know, they're all brown and black belts and, you know, there I am. And there's a girl there too, a couple of them. And, you know, they're yellow belts and they, they learn a kata and they look beautiful. Everybody wants her now. She looks so nice in that kata, you know, and, but she was a yellow belt and if someone hit her she'd be down out and gone you know so there's that there's that line between going into katas and dealing with that and getting the crap beat out of you right so if you go too much one way or if you go too much the other way but if you can get that balanced in between of tea drinking and having a beer after it works well You know, it's uh, it's interesting because I used to go to a lot of competitions when I was younger. The beauty to me that I see in martial arts is I may see somebody do something, and even if I don't know their martial art, I see the applications. I'm an applications guy, right? So I would go and ask them. Yes. I said, "Hey, that was a really cool move," and and I would say, "What is what does it do? What is this? You know?" And I would re- replay the move for them, and then I said, "What does that actually do?" And the a lot of times I would get, I would get a, uh, I'm not sure, I don't know. I'm like, okay. So that would tell me the type of martial artist they were. They were just a performer, right? So, and, and, and which is fine. There's nothing wrong with performing. But for me, understanding what you're doing, oh my God, that is huge. So for me, like you were talking about, if you're performing, that's cool. But knowing, how to use it, how to, how to do the actual technique, and the ins and outs of it, that's huge. So when I teach a weapon, I teach people how to use it, and they're like, oh, that's cool. I said, now, now how do you use it? How do you attack? How do you defend? How do you move? What are your feet doing? So it's important for my students, and they realize that, and I, I'm a very open book with them. I'm not the old mentality where it says, you know, you can't, ask me questions. And there's still people like that. But for me is the more questions you ask me, the better you'll become. So ask away. And the the important thing for me is to make sure they understand the movement and how it's applied. And a lot of times I'll ask them first, do you, do you know what yes. you just did? They're like, no. I said, well, let's think about it. What do you think? What is it coming from? How are you going to react and, and act with that movement? And if they don't really get it, I say, well, let's, let's consider this application. Let's consider that. And then all of a sudden, they start to get it. And a lot of my students will say, 
yes. now that makes a lot more sense because if I can see it, I can feel it yes. and I can do it. Wow. That's, that's huge. And that's the way I teach because if you don't know what you're doing, what are we doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, if you don't know what you're doing, what are you doing? Just make it tighter and you might do it better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dana, you are, you're, you're the funniest guy I've met in a while because like I was saying earlier, uh, one of our friends posted something uh, like, if you were going to move, what state would you move to? Go ahead. Tell us your response. A state of confusion, you know, because I let my freak flag fly. But then again, you remember, I've been back here for 20-something years now, back in the U.S. Mm. And in that time, I've sparred everybody you know. Mm. Everybody that's known in the martial arts, we've sparred and played around with different things. And I've all become buddies with them. Yeah. And there's another thing, too. All my training is done in a different country, away from everything in this country. So I have no peers in the same art here, mm. but every Japanese person has done sort here in the United States. I all know them because we all come from the same roots. Right. So make a long story short, there's, I'm, I'm separate. I'm like a warrant officer in the military. You know what I mean? Mm. <laughs> they give me lots of coffee, but I don't get a lot of money. <laughs> so anyway, it, it's sort of like that. So, I can be a smart ass because everybody knows me and everybody knows that uh, um, they've known me through the other side of the sword because this is what I have lived for. I discovered it when I came back to the United States. And these are people that have been doing weapons way longer than me. Is I smoke one down the middle with the sword and I see their eyes open just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Just a little while. Oh, I wasn't ready. Just the first time after that, yeah. they, 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 they don't, but it's their first time up to the chopping block and you just sneakily, yeah. sneakily, that's a good word, smoke that puppy in and ba bang. And there's just, oh, how the hell did you get that? And it's just been millions and millions of repetition. That's all it is. That's, that's the key. I'm just a rat trap. As I said, up, down, up, down, up, down. A matter of fact, when I teach people, and they start turning it into something that's a quagmire in their head. Mm. Just say up and lift, cut the sword up and cut down and cut the sword. Just up, down, and just see, think simple terms to create simple technique that creates simple mechanics. Because at the end of the day, no matter what you think, if you can't best the guy with your point, you might not stay around. You know, that's the warrior attitude a little bit there because you're always training for that day because you never know. Because go back 300 years, the end of the day, you never knew. Even if you were emperor, you never know that someone would come behind and shiv you. Of course. Yeah, so, you know, so if you're always on it. Besides that, it keeps me, my whole body's like I'm about 40. Mm. You know, everything. Yeah, so it works in really, really well. It's also the mentality, right? If you think you're old, then you are old. If you think you're young, then you're young. It's that you mindset that we have to get into. If you're leading a sedentary lifestyle, then it's easy to start saying, oh, yeah, I'm old. I can't do this. I can't do that. But if you live the warrior mind style, oh, my gosh. Well, you're on it. 
People are like, like now you read everybody. If you go to Facebook, for example, or any of those places, and everybody's like, wow, mm. you gained 40 pounds. <laughs> How can you get that sort around that girth? Right, of course. And, well, you know what I mean. You know, but everybody's now is on a diet or everybody, I want to go back to do this. Right. Me, I've been consistent all the way through because if I didn't, it would have been against my norm. You know, and the norm is consistency. Like my, one of my short sword teachers, Tabuchi Sensei, looked like a, a kamikaze fighter pilot back in the 40s. It looked just like that. And he goes, you, his Japanese word of consistency, he looks and he goes, you want to see consistency? So he goes over to the one little closet things, pulls out his junior high school judo gi, puts it on, and he's 60 at that time. Wow. Yeah, yeah, or 63 at that time. And yeah, he's, this is what you want to strive for. So in my 30s, you know, you look at that kind of stuff and you go, you strive for it. And all it takes is something that I've gone beyond that they did because they got into trouble with. Mm-hmm. They were in an era after, you know, what do you call it? The greatest generation. Right. And everybody there was in the war in Japan and everybody was in the military. Mm. Tobacco, whiskey, kendo. Just like that. Because they didn't know that you get cancer from tobacco. Right. They didn't know you're going to get stomach cancer. And they quit, they quit, started quit smoking when in, in 1985 to 88 around there. But they've been smoking for 40 years, you know. The damage has been done. Non-filter. Yeah. So they're only going to, they only live to like 85, 90. But me, I sort of got past all that, only drank when I had to, and I can drink, let me tell you. But, uh, and uh, I can get past all those stages a little bit more just at being a pure martial artist because you have to remember one thing. In Japan, if you become really famous, you get fat because everybody buys you a beer and it's not very nice saying, I don't want to drink with you. Yeah. And that's the way it is. So here in the United States too, when you see fairly well-known martial artists, they're sort of portly. Mm. That's because everybody wants to buy him a beer. Right. It's the thin ones no one wants to buy him a beer because they just worked out too hard and they got to go home because they can't get to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll take a they'll take a maybe one beer and the rest is water. When you when you think about like you said the old ways, right? Because my grandmaster taught yes. with a cigarette in his hand the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, well, you know, he was just teaching. He wasn't working yeah. out. You he know. wasn't thinking about it. No, he worked out, believe it or not. He would do the very surprising of, of what he would do with a cigarette that at one point he had the cigarette and he did a form and he he crossed his hand. He he. It looked like he was holding two cigarettes and the, the form went forward like this. Yeah. So everybody thought that you... You know, it was supposed to be like this. The only thing is that you had to do it like this with the two fingers, like holding a cigarette. And everybody thought that it had to be open hand because he was only holding a cigarette. That's why he did it that way. But later on, when people were doing it open hand, he's like, what is wrong with you? I showed you the two fingers, not the whole open hand. So people like, oh, so he actually was showing us the right way. We just interpret it the wrong way, right? (laughs) Hey, that's what happens. Same thing with test cutting. The old guys, they'd be standing there and basically the same thing, just like this. They'd make a cut, look at it, take a puff, another puff. They'd take another cut, maybe another two cuts, you know, just like that. 
And at the end of, at the end of the cutting the mat, maybe if it was only a one or two or maybe five or six cuts, depending on what they were doing, you know, or if they cut the peg 50 bucks and then they have to buy everybody a beer. <laughs> because basically it's a good old boys club when everybody hits 50 plus it's what it comes down to you know when you're young you don't know you learn kendo or judo because you learn one of those two things if you're american you learn baseball baseball or football basically back in the day in in in, in japan you learn judo or kendo if you're a hyperactive kid you learn kendo never get hit by a car if you're slow metabolism kid you learn judo you'll never slip in the snow and it takes you your whole life and then from there they do that and they get good or bad you know whatever which way they do because it's required through junior high and high school for example so by the time you get out you could be a strapping young black belt or brown belt for example go on to bigger and better things so there's lots of different aspects of the sword but by the time you hit about 30 and you did practice kendo and you don't do it for a business Mm-hmm. And you see, you're a salary man. You've heard that term before. You know, you're busy. But about 35 or so, you start thinking about it again and you go teach your kids and you go with your kids now. And then you start drawing the sword in the idol a little bit and that starts flourishing. And then you find there's a bunch of guys that are cutting things in the next five years. And you go, I'm going to buy myself a shinken. And then you buy yourself a shinken. They run about three to six grand over there for a basic one. That's about eight, that's about maybe 1200 grams. And then you start cutting, and now you're an old guy, and you just try not to cut yourself putting away the sword when you get too old. And that's the hierarchy of sword. Right. And then all these people, the ones way at the top, they're on big, huge, stretch black limousines. Everybody I dealt with had property all over the place. If you want to go stay down in Kyushu next to the temple, go ahead, because my grandfather owned that temple. And there was so much money. It's all samurai. And they still have their fingers in everything with all the sports. And you just work your way up. Besides that, I was the only American around. So anyway, and my Japanese was fluent by then, so that really helped be able to laugh at all their jokes. (laughs) (laughs) So there's just so, it's, it's, it's ambiguous and there's no belt rank talking. No one wears a belt. You look at it in Kendo or anything. How many years you in? 40 years. Oh, they don't even ask. They just see you walking down the street. They know. Mm. They know. Mm. You're either a shacho or a bucho or you're a kendoist or, you know, you own a company or you're there. You, they see the warrior spirit and that's what it is. Even the Japanese record, because they try to push out the warrior spirit. Mm-hmm. But even nowadays <clears throat> with phone and all the media, the warrior spirit, you can see big in the animation now. Oh, yeah. You know, or when you watch a lot of swordmanship on TV with all the Japanese kids that you see it. Right. And they have their hair in their face. You know, they look like they're dressing up for it. Anyway, maybe if you watch 20 of them, there's one or two in there. Ah, he's a black belt in kendo. You can see his, his stand tall a little bit more, a little bit like that, where everybody else is just swinging the sword back and forth. So something that you said that, that triggered a thought for me was... Yes. It's required. Yes. And up to middle school, that they pick, pick something and do something. It's required. Through middle school, into junior high school, into, into, into um, high school. Yes. <laughs> so he, here's, here's my thought. What difference do you think it would make in America if that was a requirement here? 
Well, first of all, that wouldn't happen in the new America. Judo almost happened. Judo almost happened. But it was too hard. Mm-hmm. I fall down a lot. It's smelly. It's stinky. <laughs> it isn't practical because I'm going to throw someone down on the ground when I can learn another art that says I can just stand up and in four minutes I'll have a black belt. So there's so much social media saying you can be this owner of some really nice swamp, swamp property. Mm. Just bring your hammock. You know, it's just the same. It's just, you know, and people have to look past that a little bit just because. It is just the way it is. Because we got, in America, we got 320 million people. And it's harder to find a good, worthy person that wants to be a black belt compared to the 1980s when everybody worked out of their garage where you got a good sweat and a fat lip. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. You know, back then you worked out five, six days a week Mm in the seventies and the eighties came. And then you worked out a good four days a week. And then the nineties came and the schools and everything, you can come three times a week. And then through the turn of the century, three times a week for 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden around 2010, twice a week. And then you can be part of the Black Belt Club and then get it three times a week for 45 minutes. And then all of a sudden, around 2018, you know, we really don't want to work out that hard because Johnny prefers the bench looking at his phone. So we're going to work out an hour a week. No, 35 minutes because an hour is hard to spell. And that's what I've seen with the martial arts. So if we try to get judo, for example, which was here as I learned it just a little bit back when I was nine or 10, Mm -hmm. that dissipated out because no one grasped it. Mm -hmm. Well, now everybody has all the opportunity to grasp it. They have so many choices, they don't make a choice. You're you're absolutely right. I mean, even think about, I love it when you say that. So when you think about, like, even when my kids were going to school, uh, I still have a 16-year-old who's going to school, but they don't have gym every day. No, they don't. They don't have to, no. That's a shame. I went to... No. No, well, you know what? And that's the problem. When I went to junior... What? When I went to grade school, gym every day. When I went to junior high school, every day. High school, if I did, if I missed a gym class, it was worse than missing history. Mm-hmm. You, you know, you couldn't graduate. I remember Arizona State University. They said I couldn't graduate because I didn't finish my one-hour PE credit in fencing in 1978. Mm. So instead of graduating in June of 78, I graduated in December of 78 because I had to take one freaking class for PE so I could get out. It was a requirement back in the 70s in college too. So things have changed so much now that... Not saying that's bad, but it's all pushed out everywhere. Everybody's pushed out to say, you don't have to be a warrior. We want you to be a follower a little bit. So don't do this. Don't do that. Don't make goals. Mm. Keep your goals down. Peek your head down. Mm. I mean, <clears throat> I saw that a lot throughout the world. Put your head down. No one will hit you. You know how many times my head's been slapped? <laughs> you know, so I might be getting off on a tangent here, but now you're talking to the grumpy old mid 60 something old guy that has a few more months until he hits Medicare. Right. 
you know, which I'm never going to use because I don't want that poison in me, Mm -hmm. you know, for example. But yeah, the next 35 years are going to be the same way. You'll see me on this. But probably one of the biggest things that I really enjoy, the interesting fact that I just got back here to the U.S. and then I talked to people in their 40s and they go, I looked at you when I was a little kid and said, someday, someday. And I'm thinking about me. Mm. I don't think of my presence. Like at the very beginning, you said, Dana, your presence, you have a lot of presence. I don't see it. Yeah. Who's all the money that's supposed to come with all this? I guess it's like basketball in 1945. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, but you know, the, the impact that you have made in the martial arts community, when you're thinking about it, because of the type of person you are, and you're saying, I don't, if I've made an impact, great, but I wasn't trying to make the impact. I'm being who I am. And this is who you are, right? You're Dana Abbott. And, and, and even your, your, yes. your last name, you know, if, if you're in the Chinese martial arts and you're the abbot, you're like the head guy, <laughs> right? You're the head guy. Yeah. You're the head guy. Or you're picked first. I got picked first through school. I had to wing it every time in class to since the first grade. I was first. I stand up. What? Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But the impact that you've made on a lot of people's lives is is. I I try, you know, I try to do this. It, it's it's That's fun, it. you know. That's the it's, key. It's, uh, if you get exactly, the yeah, key. it's fun. It really is. It's and it's fun. Like when I go over to the super show, everybody wants to buy me a beer, even though I'm not going to drink a lot of beer. Mm. But nevertheless, that's sort of nice, right, you know, right. just sort of being in the field. Actually, my kids enjoy it way better than I do because, you know, they know, I guess, they see, you know, through your eyes, I guess. Right. And they love going to here because, you know, I, I know everybody. And it isn't like, you know, calling them sir. They call me sir. It's like, hey, how you doing here? Pull my finger. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Let's because be real, we, right? <laughs> well, you know, if we are all Marine generals all at the top, we're all at the same age. We all went to the same academy, probably. We're still pulling each other's fingers because it doesn't change. Nothing changes. No, no. And, you, you know, like, like you, you said to me earlier, I mean, and I believe the same thing is we have to laugh on a daily basis because our joy, that it's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. And we really have to not only laugh, but sometimes even laugh at things we've done where we thought, oh, wait, I made a mistake. Oh, I should laugh it off because we should learn from our mistakes, but we should also enjoy our lives. We should really encompass every moment and and enjoy it. And even, you know, when you look back at moments in our lives that have been somewhat tragic, and it's what we do with those, and, and do we hold on to them and keep that tragedy, keep coming back and back and back, or do we eventually let go of them and move on and grow from it? Because every experience whether it's a good experience or a bad experience, is an opportunity for growth. This concludes part one of a two-part series. Stay tuned for the next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I'll be back with a new episode and a new guest. You can find all episodes of the Coaching Call podcast on Apple, Anchor, Spotify, iHeartRadio, 
Stitcher, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I ask that you please leave me an honest review. This episode was made possible by listeners like you. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and buy me a cup of coffee. Make it a large. I'm trying to keep this episode free of advertisements. Anything you can donate to the cause is greatly appreciated. To donate, go to paypal.me backslash Sifu Raphael. Thank you and I really appreciate your help.